You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. It's with Payel Kadakia, uh, who is the founder of the fitness and wellness platform ClassPass, which provides people access to the best boutique fitness. Fit, uh, okay, take two. I think you're going to enjoy today's podcast with Payel Kadakia, who is the founder of the fitness and wellness platform ClassPass, which provides people access to the best boutique fitness classes, gyms, and wellness experiences around the world. Uh, She is also the founder and artistic director of the Saw Dance Company, which we talked about, and she has a new book. It's called Life Pass, Drop Your Limits, Rise to Your Potential. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Kyle Kadakio, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So one of my favorite conversations in your new book is the conversation you needed to have with yourself about how your work as an artist, which is a dancer in, in, in your case, fit in with your work as a business person and entrepreneur. And it seems that the real discovery, and I don't know if this happened before writing the book or during writing the book, was that those two worlds don't need to be in conflict and they actually can inform and support each other, right? Absolutely. Um, You know, obviously most people always ask me about how my Indian American identity played or what it's like being a woman in tech. And um, I love that you are even asking me this question because one of the bigger struggles of my life has really been the fact that I've been a really creative human being with dance and had this not even just a hobby, but an an innate connection to something about creating and choreographing and um, moving. And then on the other end, I was in love with math and science and went to Mm -hmm. one of the top math and science schools in the world. So it's one of those things where I've never felt comfortable with that split in me. But I think for me, as I started building ClassPass and becoming an entrepreneur, I found a space where both could coexist in my career. And I think that's really when I hit strides. And to be um, honest, I think that's really the magic that led ClassPass to even being born. Obviously, I had a great business background, but I know it was my creative side that really created the, connected the dots that created the company. I think you're lucky, too, in that 
you are much younger than me. Uh, and when I was coming up in the theater industry, like in, and, and certainly working on the business side, but also creative side, um, there wasn't as much appreciation, certainly in corporate America, for the power of things like theater and play and all that. Whereas now, I think enough behavioral scientists and neuroscientists have, you know, given out the evidence of like, no, 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 no. Like, if you want, the one thing I always talk about is like, every pr- business in America wants people to be innovative. And right. I said, okay, okay. So then where are you allowing your people to be creative? Because you don't get innovation without creativity and creativity is very messy. Right. Um, it's a, you know, it's a good question because I even think for me, it was even more than just the corporate structure. It was the fact that, you know, my parents gave up everything to move to this country. And first and foremost was education and it was getting landing a secure, stable job. And so doing anything creative just was something that potentially could leave you in a place where it wouldn't pay the bills, right? Or be mm-hmm. something that my parents just didn't want me to ever feel like I was going to suffer in my life. So they were okay with it being a hobby. And throughout my life, I was always told in a way it wasn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. Even though I was at MIT and I remember looking up applications to NYU Tisch to the, like, cause it's the greatest dance and art school. Um, I remember doing that. And obviously like I didn't train in ballet, so I couldn't get in because I was an Indian classical dancer, but I remember just wanting and wanting to have that dream and everyone in my life almost always saying to me, well, you have to do something else. And I think for me, having the freedom to start my company was the first place where I could be me, even though I fully even didn't commit to dancing at the time, I still felt like I was free enough to really put the parts of me together. So after graduating MIT, which is 2005, you went to Bain as one does. Um, but after a couple of years, you had a manager give you some tough feedback. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So it was my fault. You know, I, I take 100% blame for it. So a few months before my review with, uh, my boss, I ended up going to a dance performance over a client meeting. Now Mm -hmm. at the time it wasn't that big of a decision. Me and, you know, her had talked about it. It was sort of uh, Hey, I have this performance. I don't really need to be the client meeting. Okay, great. Like go to it. And it was something I had been practicing and performing for, for a few months now that I didn't want to miss it. And so I went to it. It wasn't that big of a deal. And then a few months later, we're having this conversation and she goes, well, I don't know if this is you know, the right job for you and if this is really what you want. And of course, I took that as negative feedback. Wow, she thinks I can't do it because of my type A uh, personality and, and mm-hmm. sort of brain processing at that moment. And my immediate reaction, and I know for most type A people would be, no, I'm going to prove to her I want this and I can do this. And so I spent, I feel like a few weeks kind of creating that plan in my head of how I was going to prove that, no, she was totally wrong. But as I started doing that, I realized she was right. And she was Mm -hmm. actually giving me good advice. It may have, you know, not come out in the right way, or it may have not felt like a mentor session in any means by any means, but she was trying to tell me like, this is not the path I actually was choosing clearly by my decisions. Why am I not owning up to that? And it was a really important moment for me, even though, like I said, in hindsight, it didn't feel important, but it made me realize I needed to start charting my own journey. I was an adult. I was in the professional world. I had checked every box in the world for my parents at that point. It was time to start thinking about what my own path would be. 
And then I think it's interesting because I think it's just a couple of years later where you made, you had this like dance performance and you were trying to figure out who to invite. And then who did you invite? Oh, for uh, all my, you mean my office? Yeah. yeah. So that was around, yeah, the same time. And I think I always, once again, we were just having this conversation, struggled with how do my, how does my business side and dancer side coexist? But my dancer side always gave me confidence and always gave me this sense of, I don't know, enlightenment. And I felt in the zone and I've seen other people in the zone, whether it was at work or doing other things. And that was my place to shine. And so I always felt when people would watch me dance, they would get to really know the real me. And if they didn't see me dance, they didn't truly know me. And so I decided to invite my entire office to Mm -hmm. my performance, which was kind of insane to really think back about it. And to be honest, it was an okay show. It was really a dance recital. It was not something that by any means was a great production, but so many of them showed up. I had like a whole row at the theater. And I remember afterwards, my bosses, some of them came up to me and, and and in consulting, you have like multiple bosses because you work on different projects. Um, and they said, Hey, will you come and teach me and, you know, my fiance at dance for our upcoming wedding. And I would show up there on the weekends and I would rehearse with them. I would teach them. And, you know, we'd be sometimes in the office kitchen and they'd be like, am I doing the step right? And it was a complete <laughs> role reversal in a way. Uh-huh. And it earned me a little bit of respect in a different yeah. way to be the teacher, uh, instead of obviously just, you know, being the person who is uh, being the analyst in the, in the project. So I really like that. It gave me a new way and it's, it helped me form different relationships with people. Um, and the only other thing I would say about this, which I think was really important is while I loved obviously my Bain community and my business community, my creative side allowed me to have also different perspectives from different people as well. So in my dance community and friend circle, It was people who literally were not trying to get promotions at work. Like they didn't care about getting married. They were living by a very different lifestyle, which was truly about feeding their creativity and art. And I loved having that and seeing that because it fueled my creativity and art, which once again, I think ended up being a company in a way, but I really needed to be around both one that felt more structured and one that felt really unstructured. And I think that allowed me and myself to really become fully into, um, you know, all colors of who I was. Uh, the book is a, has a lot about identity for, for, for many different reasons, some of which you've alluded to right now. Um, but initially growing up, your, your solution was not, in, in which makes sense, this sort of blended, you know, beautiful thing that, that it can be. But instead, you said you created a divide um, between your American and Indian side. How, how did that manifest itself? Yeah. So I literally split myself in two. I felt like I was high school football cheerleader during the week and, mm-hmm. you know, going to my, obviously my school, doing my homework uh, with a bunch of friends who obviously didn't look like me, but I got along with. And then on the weekends, I had this beautiful Indian community full of, you know, people who looked like my parents, you know, and had the same sort of values and cultural background. And we would dance together, whether it was me learning um, different dance, dance styles, and then we would have festivals together. And I felt more comfortable there. I felt like I belonged there more. It was also great to have both perspectives, I think, for me growing up. But it was really interesting because what I didn't love is that I did feel like I was split in two. And I talk about this one instance always where there was my favorite 
Navratri festival, which is a huge festival that happens in the Gujarati culture. And uh, it would always coincide with my football games. And I was a varsity cheerleader. I had to be at my games. And I remember just going from my cheerleading outfit to my, you know, ornate Indian, Indian outfit in the middle of the parking lot. And um, the things I would do to make both worlds really feel whole. And ultimately they both didn't because I was missing a part of who I was on both. And I think it took me probably until college. And then once again, a little bit after to really start celebrating both sides of me and feeling like they could coexist. Yeah. I, I think, you know, that I think it's true for many, many people. Um, uh, my first wife was um, Nigerian uh, American. And I remember uh, that we would have that sort of conversation of like, when when you're assimilating and 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 when you aren't and and the and the reality too is i think you mentioned this in the book the, the idea of you say quote by limiting our identity we limit what we're capable of end quote and that's so beautiful because it's like no no like we want all of that and when when you bring and i think people also like this idea of bringing your whole self to work can can cut badly uh for certain people when it's not necessarily true um, but when it is appreciated, it's the best because it's like that variety and that difference is ultimately um, what creates your best business outcomes because it allows people to look at something with fresh eyes, truly fresh Absolutely. eyes. Right. It's, it's out of box thinking, right? Yeah. It's new thought. And I really don't know what other combination of a personality of a human could have thought of the idea of class pass. Like I really, you know, think right. back to it. And I'm like, I went to MIT, I worked at Bain, great. And then I was taking dance classes every day, fighting to. I just don't know what other person would have probably been in that same exact situation. And so I say this because I want people to celebrate their different parts of who they were. Because I, you know, we just talked about the fact that I didn't feel comfortable being both people. But look, both of those sides came together and created something so magical for the world when I finally leaned into it and built the confidence up to lean into it. And importantly, ClassPass didn't work at first, right? I mean, yes. this was, yeah. <laughs> so talk a bit about that because I really think that people don't, this is the thing in, in our, in my world and improvisation, we have to teach everyone to become very comfortable with failure uh, mm-hmm. because you're, you're, the bulk of your scenes are going to be terrible and they're not going to work. And so, but when you get that muscle of like, okay, pick myself up, you're like, you realize, well, that's the way the world operates. Right. Very few things come out like all like, this is great. It's going to work. It's like, no, most of your things are going to fail. So if you tell us a bit about that story, because I think it's very, very important. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, once I had mustered up the courage to actually go on this journey, Mm -hmm. uh, I failed many, many times. I mean, let's see the first idea we had, we spent a year building it, spent half a million dollars, putting capital into it and put it out there. And it was crickets. No one was going to class. And it was a really hard time because we had thought we had done everything right, right? We had checked once again, all the boxes because I was used to that, right? I was used to sort of being able to go to my network for things, raise capital. Like those things were easier because of my background at the time. But once we failed, I think that's really when I woke up and became an entrepreneur. I really credit all the success of ClassPass to failing because it taught me how to move. It taught me how to listen to my product in a very different way than I ever was before, because I was relying on, you know, I, I talk a lot about this in the book, false signals of success that yeah. were truly not the things that were going to tell me if my company was going to work at all. And I was getting stuck. And 
I realized that I love failing now. And once we did that first failure and then we finally started getting people to go to class on the second iteration that we had. And then that one was still a little off. And I know my team wanted to kind of stay in that second iteration mm-hmm. because it was, it was profitable and it was, it was giving us, you know, money and, and press and all the things again, but the business was broken because it wasn't uh, translating into long-term clients for either us or our partners. Right. And so I knew that wasn't going to work. And then we finally tried the subscription and that worked. And I could just tell by reading emails from people that the product had worked. And I think this is something I learned is it's such an intuitive thing when you have product market fit. It isn't data that's going to tell tell you that. It was really hearing five people in customer service just send me emails about their feedback on the product. And I think hearing that firsthand, and I think, you know, we were just talking about improv with emotion and an audience and when you know people feel it and get it, it's so different, right? Than when you're yeah. kind of stuck in your own zone of just yeah. talking and saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. It's so different when people tell you that you already did it and they feel it. Like I, I always remember this with ClassPass. You know, people always ask me like, how did you build your brand and all of it? I'm like, the product did. I didn't have to, I didn't have to tell them how to feel because the product was doing the work, right? It was in the, it was built with the right mission. It was built with the right intention. I didn't have to, I didn't have to formulate it in some sort of box to make them, to make them feel a certain way. They just felt it because we designed the product in the right way and with the right intention. Uh, yeah, I talk to sort of various entrepreneur groups. Uh, and one of the things I always mention is like for startups, like the best preparation you can have for startup is putting on a show. <laughs> I, I love that you just said that because that's basically my life. And yes, I, you, you put know, on it because you have to I, you have to market it. You've got to figure out how to staging. You've got the lights. You've got like people. You got to deal with people. Absolutely, right. Absolutely. All those things come together, and then you have this performance, and you know, like whether it's crickets, right, or whether it's a standing ovation. It's like and yeah. that and that that's that's a startup. That's so funny you say that because I feel like I and I've said this a few times lately that I believe class has started with my hundred person dance show that I did with, you know, in the middle of New York city, I talk about it in in the book because once again, I had like, I had to learn all the things you just said. I never knew how to run space, how to market a show, how to get a stage manager and a lighting designer, but I learned all these things and we got the standing ovation at the end Mm -hmm. and it gave me confidence to say, okay, let's put on a little bigger show and let's, let's iterate and change. Maybe we can do this part better. And let's see how it goes. And it kept getting better. And I learned more than more than anything, even the execution side of it, was that I knew how to be a good leader, that I could yeah. have a vision in my head and communicate it to other people to help me in propelling that vision forward. And that's a skill that, you know, I do believe and I credit a lot to my, you know, my dance and choreo- choreographic For abilities sure. is that, you know, I remember even in college, I choreographed 40 person dance routines and to get people to move in unison, like that requires an ability to communicate something that's only in my head Mm -hmm. to a lot of people and get them to move. And, you know, I, I, I really had been doing that since I was probably in high school. So the leadership side of it um, wasn't always, it's not that it wasn't hard. It was just nice kind of knowing that in the real world that I had still had that. And that gave me such confidence when I decided to really go and build a company to say, I believe that I can, I can help people and make people work with me to create something. 
uh, one of the fun things about having this podcast, and I didn't know this was going to happen, which is, uh, um, we, so for example, we had Sunil Gupta uh, on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And his terrific book, Backable. Um, and then we totally hit it off. And so now this spring, we're actually co-creating a class at the Farley School for Entrepreneurship at Northwestern using improv, uh, uh, bespoke improv exercises with his principles from Backable. And, and part of that, you talked about uh, uh, when you're pitching, you know, drawing on your performance background. And that's something that he, he talks about as well ter- in terms of like personal storytelling and this idea of getting to know show people the struggle and that you have, you were part of the struggle as a, as a way. And they'll want to like join on because there's another great phrase he has, which is um, conviction is more important than charisma. So this idea that if they know you believe it, you know, and this is, this is what you exude, right. It's much, much better than just being like the charismatic one in the room. Yeah. It's, you know, I think for me, I think people realized what we also call founder market fit for me at some point, which was, I was the right person to build this and I was capable of doing it. Um, and it's funny. And I, I do think I was pitching all wrong before. It was almost as if I was trying to act it out in a way that didn't feel authentic to me, my body, any of that. And like you said, like, I mean, I had been performing my whole life and yeah. I had someone literally say to me, pile, what are you doing? Like, why are you not doing this the way you do everything? everything else in your life. And, you know, and, and I knew how to perform. I knew how to be confident, but when, you know, you're nervous and we always are when we're in, in different situations yeah. and when we care a lot as well. And I really needed to figure out a way to tell a story. Cause I realized that was always my magic, even in dance. The reason I think people always loved uh, my dance company and the way we performed was because we told a story and mm-hmm. it was emotional and they could ride along on it. And I realized I needed to change my pitches more to that. And the numbers would flow in that. It wasn't that the numbers were more important. It was that the story had to un- unveil numbers in the right way. I also love how you frame leadership in this book. You say, quote, as the leader of my company, I discovered my strength comes from listening to and honoring my emotions, not the sort of classic American story of the leader, which of course is a white, tall, male barking orders around. And that does not work in terms of for young people, but really for anyone or ever. Uh, so talk to us a bit about the important, especially the importance of listening, because that is so huge in our work. I think empathy is something that is really underrated. And as a woman, as somebody who started a company really young and really felt a lot of feelings while I was doing it, up and down, mm-hmm. I realized sharing them with the people who were building it with me only brought us closer, not anything else. And it made them care more. It made them fight more. And of course, you know, you have to figure out the right way to do it. You know, there's always a little bit of strategizing and a little bit of, you know, how do you uh, make sure you're leading, right? And you don't want to instill fear or any of that. But I realized I was allowed to be emotional. And I think a lot of times in the world, we are told, I I was told this to emotions can be a weakness, you know, and especially to leave it out of the business world. And I think of once again, and I was just referring to it about brands and building consumer oriented companies that are lifestyle companies. How can that be void of emotion? Exactly. And I really think in terms of the workplaces, we create all of that how do we not bring how we feel 
with us. And I've always been very, very effusive. I just, I'm a, I'm a human being like that. I've led like that. I think my team love that about me. I mean, my team will celebrate my successes. And at the same time, they'll know when we're, you know, times are tough and they'll be like, Hey pile, like things are going to be okay. Like, I just love that, that we feel like we're, we're all in this together. And I, I mean, if you think about any relationship in your life, right, family, friendships, And I think the best teams in the world operate in a very similar way. How do you build that bond without that, you know, EQ, right? If that makes sense, EQ and IQ. And um, I've always really been in touch with that side of me. I've really, I know when I feel like I'm losing that, or I feel like things are getting too, you know, serious and, and we're losing a little bit of that things become stale. And I don't think, you know, no dance performance was ever good stale and no company is ever going to be good stale. Uh, there's a, a, a book that I read and then I did a podcast interview with Annie Murphy, Paul, it's called the extended mind has changed my life. And she's a science writer. And the, the crux of the book is that through her research, um, our metaphors for thinking are bad. Um, when we think about the brain as a computer, uh, when we think about like it as a muscle, because like a computer operates the same outdoors as it does indoors and, mm. and, and the brain, our thinking doesn't because our thinking is tied to our emotion and our bodies in particular. Right. And so our bodies are usually feeling the thing before it goes up here. And, and so, uh, you know, you don't think like that you know, on a daily level until like for myself, I've been like basically doing a daily audit of like, oh, I'm like, if I'm driving, I'm afraid of something like, oh, that's coming from my body first to my brain. And so I have certain tactics I can use like Mm -hmm. smiling. Yeah. To get over it. To not be. Yeah. Cause that, and then I'm like, oh my God, these are, this is just a, a, a complete reversal of how I came to think about how we think. And, and I imagine because you grew up so body focused in terms of dancing, that that was always something you were able to sort of, you know, go, almost like the system one, system two, go back and forth from, from, from that. From each one. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, Indian dance particularly was actually is built on this yes. concept of Abhinaya, which is all emotion. It is about sharing the story with people mm-hmm. through facial expressions. And, you know, Indian dance obviously has like many parts to it. And actually what always made you know, or made me sort of talented when I was younger was that I always had really good facial expressions. That was people, what people always noticed about my dancing. And that obviously had to have come from a place inside of me. So since I was younger, I always leaned into it. Like you said, I almost had was trained in a way to be very, very into my emotions and, and that became out in dance. And I was very okay with that vehicle. And I think that's part of why, what helped me is that I had a vehicle to channel it into. And honestly, when I think about class pass and, you know, all the emotions we all have as adults, people need a place to put that, right? Whether it's in working out or running or whatever you might be doing, your creative sides, we all need that as adults too. Like I had a place to play in a way and let my emotions sort of be vibrant. And I think, you know, everyone should continue to have that vibrant life, which comes from emotion. I don't know how you can live that without that. And, and I really like, that's really at the heart of why class pass exists is really for people to feel and be in a place where they're like, ah, I pushed through that. And, you know, they've forgotten the day-to-day grind that they're in all day. Well, and I think the, the tragedy, and it is a tragedy. And I think it's why you wrote this book is most people don't play as adults. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, we're, we're told not to, right? We're told, exactly. we're told not to. I've been saying this on consecutive podcasts. I'll say it again. This idea of the great resignation is bull. It's a meaning crisis. People have lost that kind of meaning. And part of that is because we're not in these spaces of playfulness with each other or with nature. It doesn't have to necessarily be, not everyone wants to be with a bunch of people. That's actually fine. Yeah. But we are, we are, we only, we only thrive as human beings and we only flourish as human beings if we're truly connected uh, with one another and social media and the loss of, you know, uh, churches and other places where we used to assemble. I mean, you could like so many people like don't know their neighbors, you I know, and, and, and you, right. we, yeah. yeah, I completely agree with that. And, um, the sense of play should never, ever leave us. And I think what happens to a lot of people is we don't know how to prioritize it. And yeah. people always, I think, you know, look at my life. They'll be like, how are you? You know, now everyone's always like, oh, how are you a mom and an ambitious woman? And I'm like, I have been prioritizing my passion with my career since I was five years old. I have always fought to dance in my life. Yeah. I want everyone to fight for that thing in their life. And, you know, the, the eighth chapter of my book about time is a, such a critical part of this equation because people have to know how to use their time to right. be able to actually be able to fit these things in. Because a lot of times I think, you know, and my sister actually is always one of my best examples with ClassFast because when I first started the company, she would be always say to me, she's like, pile, and she had just had a baby and she's like, oh, I don't have time to use it. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I'm like, here, I'm going to just like gift it to you. Just try it out. And she fell in love with it. And I remember a few like months later, she was like, Pyle, I'm addicted. I literally like plan my life around this. And I'm like, see, like you told me a few months ago, you didn't have the time, but you did. You just needed to change it and prioritize it in the way that you wanted to. And that's really what it is. It's about prioritizing it. And when you start prioritizing it, you know what? Everyone else around you, understands, right? Whether it's partners, your bosses, if you say something is important to you, if mom, you're like, I got to go pick up my son at this time, you go, you do not yeah. feel guilty about it. Yeah. And I think that's really what it is. It's, it's when I'm going to question it. Oh, can I go pick up my son? What? No, he's my son. I'm going to pick him up. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that, it's that conviction in your decisions of how you want to live your life. No one's going to question it if you don't question it. And I know this is the yes and podcast, but you also talk about, and it's, it's absolutely correct, is learning to say no. The, this yes. idea of like, you, 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 that is a skill in and of itself. And that can be a yes and. It's a yes and to your time. Yeah. I, and, your time. and it's funny, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, my, my best ammunition against guilt and having to say no is just having so much good stuff to say yes to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the more my life is full of the yeses in the world that I just feel so compelled to do so much of that other stuff just flutters away and I don't have time and space for it. And it's usually very easy to tell what belongs in the yes column and what belongs in the no one. Um, In a minute, I'm going to ask you for yes and story, but before we do that, uh, I was really surprised and pleased and not because I'm, I'm not a whiz with numbers. I'm not, my wife keeps the, you know, the books in our house Cool. You have an entire basically chapter on finance <laughs> yep. and, and this is a kind of a self-helpy crossover business book. I, I think it, 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 which, which belong more and more together. Um, and you say, quote, we don't often talk about money and purpose in the same breath end quote, but I think we have to, is what you're saying. We have to, because usually we prioritize 
money, right? Because we feel that it's the only end all be all to our lives. But we forget that we need to make money be a part of our plan for what we, how and what we want to do in our lives and make money work for you, right? It is put together that plan. You might not have it today and that's okay, but you can put together a plan to have it in the future. My parents came here with nothing, you know, and they, they worked hard, but they, you know, had the chance to live out their dreams. Their daughters are living out their dreams. And I, I think about that because I truly have seen how they valued money and then how I value money. And that's really what it is. It's, it's get comfortable with the numbers and also understand how money really, how it, what it means to you. Cause then you can actually use it in the right way and put a plan together to unlock you, not trap you. My next podcast may seem like a stretch in terms of this conversation is with Christine Emba, who's a Washington post columnist, and she's got a book called rethinking sex. Uh, a provocation and okay. part of it. And part of what she says is we don't talk about it and in not talking about it, we let all these really bad things happen. And it's why just this idea of stopping at consent is tricky because there's many other sort of nuances and other things that are going on. And right. I think that is very true about money as well. Yeah, you're right. I think it, you know, and like, we didn't talk about it in, in my family and thank God I married someone who was had father was a statistic, a statistics economics professor and was fine talking about that. Um, but, and it's also like, you know, I grew up privileged, like we had it. Uh, so, so, so that was an issue as well, but so much of this comes down to name the topic that we don't talk about. And it's probably one of the most important things. Right. And if you don't talk about it, then you, no one knows really how to strategize it, right? If from, from everything, from motherhood, money, sex, like any of it, if we don't talk about it, then people aren't going to have better solutions, right? And right. learn from each other, right? And I think when we look at people who are fulfilled, you know, in their life, and that, that's really like, to me, why I wrote this book is, mm-hmm. yeah, like I might have, you know, I might have money now, I might have like good, you know, a good, good credibility and accomplishments under my belt, any of that. But honestly, what I really hope people look at me as see is someone who is happy and fulfilled because that to me means the most. And honestly, that to me is why I wrote this book, because I want people to live that life because I will tell you this. And I've, like I said, I've accomplished a lot at this age and, you know, and I'm humbled by that, you know, and I I really think about like the day ClassFest reached a billion dollar valuation, all of it. But honestly, like those moments go. But what stays is your fulfillment and your happiness and your purpose. And nothing to me has ever trumped that. And I got lucky and I found dance at a very young age and just nothing in my life ever really compares to that feeling. And it's, it's like a good and bad thing. Right. But because I, you know, there's things that I'll just never be like, okay, that's, that's enough. And I crave the performance and crave that high, but it feels so good that it's also guided me in a very truthful way. Uh, I forgot. I didn't even equate this when I was doing my notes for the podcast, but um, so I was the producer of second city from uh, uh, 1992 to 2015. And then I wrote the book. Yes. And and kind of moved into this other area, but the last big show I produced was a collaboration with Hubbard street dance. Okay. So what we did was we improvised a variety in rehearsal, a variety of storylines that we developed that then sort of tied into dancing and, um, and, and they do modern dance and it, it, it is the show I'm most proud of. And, and we, 
you, you, you know, Second City, it's a comedy troupe. It's six people. We usually, and if we're on the road, we'll play bigger houses, but this is like a 3000 seat dance house. And uh, one of the favorite things I had is the first, uh, this was about so, uh, basically a couple and uh, one was not committing to, to love and, and afraid to make that sort of leap. And the first act ended where, um, where the pit would be. Uh, okay. Everyone started jumping off and flying in the, into the pit. Of course, we had, you know, uh, uh, soft stuff down there for them to land on. <laughs> yeah. And then the last, the last thing was this guy who couldn't commit and he couldn't jump in and then sort of got pulled back. And it was, I, um, my kid's teacher was there um, and he comes up to me at intermission. He's crying and he's a dancer. That's what he did in his spare time. And he's like, that's me. I'm the one who couldn't commit. <laughs> he's crying on this. And I realized what we did by combining these worlds of comedy and improvisation and dance was we upped the emotional quotient, mm-hmm. you, right? So, so think about what dance does, but then what laughter does. And those often don't, when they come together in beautiful ways, mm. I don't know. I think of like some of those great movies that, they, you know, whether it's Gene Kelly or whatever, those still stick in my mind as a young person. I'm like, oh, that should be, those should be together more often. I love that. You know, it's so interesting as you're talking about this, and this is a little bit more about my dance company and not obviously my entrepreneurial journey, but so Saw, which is my dance company that I started uh, about, I guess now 13, 14 years ago, uh, is an Indian contemporary dance company. And the thing that people love about it is, of course, we have like this beautiful aesthetic of dance, very similar to ballet that obviously makes it a beautiful experience, which is already emotional. But we add the the Abhinaya to it, which is basically acting, right? So in India, they were called dance dramas because that was actually more of theater, right? It wasn't Mm -hmm. theater and then dance. It was sort of together as dance dramas. The dancers were the lead actresses, uh, which is actually how that's transpired in Bollywood too uh, today, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting as you're saying that because... I always try to explain Sa in a, in a way because I'm like, it's multiple elements coming together because it's so sensory. It's same thing. People just cry when they come yeah. and have this like spa-like experience because it is just between the music I choose and then the aesthetic of the movement combined with the emotional uh, facial expressions, people are just like, are just so sucked in. So it's interesting. Yeah. So I totally relate to yeah. what you're saying. It's that multiple sensory thing that happens to people. And that to me is, I mean, that there's something so beautiful about that at an artistic level to give to people and make people feel because sometimes, you know, especially a lot of people who are just in the grind to get them to stop and feel is so hard. So when they are hit by all these different elements, they can't, they can't, you know, protect themselves. They have to almost in a way, let it in and feel it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I hadn't even thought about that until this moment in this conversation. All right. The way we always end the podcast is asking for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, you get nowhere by saying no to each other. And you actually don't get that far by saying yes. We say you have to say yes. And you have to affirm and contribute. And that allows you to explore and heighten a, a particular idea. Um, do you have a yes and story for us? Let's see. So how about the day I quit my job? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Is that a good one? I, sure. I I decided to quit my job, let's see, in 2010 or 2011, I decided to quit my job and I ended up leaving the office that day with a $10,000 check from the vice chairman of my company, which was mm. crazy mm-hmm. because 
I thought I was shutting out every door in the world, right? By not having a secure job and stable income. But every door opened up for me when, when I did that. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate yes and because it, it's, it, it, and again, we talked about this before around no. Yes and doesn't negate the power of a no. It's really a mindset towards allowing yourself to take a chance um, and recognize that we do this together. This is another big part of your book, I think, right. which is that that idea of I can't do this alone, so I have to figure out how it, and it's the, how I choreograph the situation so that we're all part of this. And when you allow people in, when you show a little vulnerability and truth, and, and you're doing it authentically, um, and because it has real purpose behind it, people will jump aboard. One hundred percent, I completely agree with you. And to that point, you know, I feel blessed that. Since I was younger, I really believe my family was sort of my first team, whether mm-hmm. that was getting me to perform, you know, at a performance or a dance competition, whatever it might be. I felt like I had a team that was ready to help me. And I think for all, you know, young kids out there, for adults out there, you can build teams, you know, it, they don't have to come in the, the normal way we're used to. You'd be surprised how many of your friends are willing to help you out especially when you care deeply about something. I think you, you said that so well. It's when you really care and it feels purposeful, people are 100% ready to sign up and help you. The, the book is called Life Pass, Drop Your Limits, Rise to Your Potential. Payal Kadakia, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
on survive.